the basic thing that people start with and some terms we can begin with are shutter speed, aperture, and ISO. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. I know you have a deep interest in photography. And several weeks ago or months ago, I don't know when it was, but I said we should record something about your work uh shooting because when we're off mic here you've always got a project a photography project that you're working on somebody has hired you to do some photography for an event Um, well a lot of us don't do that sort of thing but we still have an interest in it and it turns out there is a a language aspect to this because there are a lot of terms in photography that people don't tend to know we've talked a little bit in the past about technical terms computing terms that uh, have come into the language. But this fits right in there because of the advent of digital photography. There are a lot of terms that are related to computing and technology and image making. Uh So uh, what have you got for us? Well, I thought first I'd start with a little classified ad here. (laughs) Oh, okay. Let's get the important stuff out of the way first. That sounds good to me. Okay, so um, I often cut my own mats. The mat is the cardboard with the hole in the middle that you place around a picture when you want to frame it or just make it look nice. And most of the time I put my pictures so that they fit in a pre-cut mat, and that saves me a lot of money. But getting your mats cut by a professional is very expensive, and so I decided to invest in a mat cutter. But the guy that sold it to me bundled with it an oval mat cutter. I couldn't even figure out what it was at first. There were no instructions, but uh, I showed it to a photographer friend of mine. And she said, oh, well, you've got oval mats like the old-fashioned portraits of people in Wild West costumes and stuff. The mat is actually oval. Yeah, it's got a rectangle on the outside, oval hole in the middle for the picture. Yeah. I have not been able to unload this thing, and I would be happy to give it away to anybody that thinks they could use it. So just drop me a line if if you'd like an oval mat cutter, and I'll send it off to you. Okay, and if anybody wants to drop a line to you or drop a line to the podcast in general, you can send it to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com, and that'll get to you. Right. So we can do that. All right. Okay, so is that the end of our classified ad for an oval mat cutter, a free (laughs) oval mat cutter? Right. Okay. Well, that'll transition right into talking about your work in photography. Right. So um, I've started off taking photographs when I was a kid with my mother's brownie box camera, um, which didn't have a lot of complexity to it. Eventually developed a light leak that... (laughs) made it unusable. And I went through quite a few different cameras. When my daughter was really little, two and three, um, she didn't like flash and uh, she wasn't very good about posing for the camera and so on. So I invested in a Polaroid camera um, because then I could show her right away 
what had happened so she could understand the event a little better. And that worked great for her purpose. But when I retired back in 2008, um, I decided to get more serious about photography i had gradually bought little more sophisticated point and shoot cameras which don't have interchangeable lenses you just point them and press the button and uh, some of them have quite sophisticated controls now but uh, not what people would call a, a really serious camera which is an slr a single lens reflex camera so now I have two of those, and people are always asking me, well, what do you use? And so I um, say that my current camera is a Canon 5D Mark III, um, which means that it's slightly out of date because the Mark IV just came out, but I'm not going <laughs> to replace it. I would took enough to save up the money for the Mark III. Now, just to step back a minute, um, some people may or may not know what a brownie camera is, but that is the classic old black and white Kodak camera where you look through the top. Right. You're looking down on the camera, and the camera's a little box, and there's a lens out the front of the camera, and that's what you shoot through. Right. And, of course, none of these settings, even on your um, digital model Canon None of the settings that work there are available on a brownie. You would just point to the thing you're going to take a picture of and shoot it. Right. Yeah. It was pretty limited. Yeah. So when I started uh, trying to educate myself, um, I turned partly to a group that was meeting a digital photography group here on Bainbridge Island, which is no longer meeting, but which was very helpful. And, of course, tried reading manuals. And one of the things I quickly discovered that just like with electronics, which I'm used to, manuals are usually useless. That is, they're written from the point of view of the people who designed them rather than from the point of view of the people who will be using them. One of my pet peeves is a manual that says, okay, this setting does this, 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 and this. Instead of saying, if you want to take this kind of picture, use this setting which would be the sensible way to write a manual. And I have found some books that do that. So um, that's something to keep in mind. I always recommend don't waste your time studying hour after hour the manual. If you don't get it when you look at it, go invest in a good book. And sometimes they cost $50, but uh, it's a worthwhile investment to find a book that's well-written and really explains to you uh, what's going on and what you need to do. And often we'll have tips that the manufacturer didn't think of, workarounds and tricks. Mm -hmm. So the basic thing that people start with and some terms we can begin with is shutter speed, aperture, and ISO. Some people say ISO. And so I thought we'd talk about those right at the top because that's what people are going to start flinging at you. All of these things can be automated and in the modern uh, point and shoots and in digital SLRs, there are settings that you can use. You can ignore those and let the camera do the thinking. It has sensors that can look at the subject and decide, well, is this a close up? Is this a landscape? Is this in shade? Is this sunshine? Is it bright? Is it dark? Um, Where's the focus supposed to be? All that kind of thing. And, and a lot of the time that will work pretty well, but a lot of the time it won't. 
You mentioned ISO, and that's the International Standards Organization. That's a group of professionals, an international group, that sets standards for many different technical, mechanical, engineering things. But uh, it does fit in with photography in a very specific way. Can you talk about that? Right. I tend not to uh, think a lot about ISO except uh, have some default settings I prefer. So I'm going to just quote from an article from Photography Life that's posted online. In very basic terms, ISO is the level of sensitivity of your camera to available light. The lower the ISO number, the less sensitive it is to the light, while a higher ISO number increases the sensitivity of your camera. The component within your camera that can change sensitivity is called image sensor or simply sensor. It is the most important and most expensive part of a camera and is responsible for gathering light and transforming it into an image. With increased sensitivity, your camera sensor can capture images in low-light environments without having to use a flash, but higher sensitivity comes at an expense. It adds grain or noise to the picture. So that's the whole thing about ISO, that you want it um, to not be grainy or to be noisy as people working with digital stuff talk about grain is something we inherited back from the film era where the actual grains of silver halide would be visible if it was somewhat coarse and there are some people who really like grain in their photographs particularly in black and white and i have seen um movies where or accounts of movies where the makers introduced a little grain because they liked the feeling of it, of film um, and didn't like the super smoothness of the digital image. I'm not a big fan of grain myself, and I'm usually <laughs> combating it. So I tend to shoot at low ISOs um, when I'm doing outdoor and just for ordinary shooting, usually around 100, which is the bottom, sometimes 200 if it's a little dim out. The lower the light level, the higher you need to set the ISO to get a good shot. But that all depends on your camera and the lens you're using and the other settings that you're doing, too. Cameras can have an auto ISO setting. Um, I don't like that very much most of the time because they can boost it up and introduce a lot of noise if your other settings aren't compensating for the low light condition as well. But if you're going to do oh, night photography or um, something really dim or you don't care a lot about the sharpness of the image, then you can certainly play around with higher ISOs. But this is also related to the quality of the camera and the lens. So as you spend more money and get a more powerful camera and a more modern camera, typically has a better ability to capture low-light images without introducing a lot of noise, and ISO becomes much less of a factor. So there are two ways to do this. You learn the tips and tricks and adjust your ICO just precisely or spend a bucket full of money and just shoot away. Okay. All right. So that's ISO. And you also mentioned another term, aperture. That word literally means opening. And how does that work 
Is that something for your digital camera to fuss about? or? Well, Aperture was true on uh, film cameras as well. And it's the opening in the lens through which the light comes. And the lenses on cameras, uh, most cameras, well, sophisticated cameras, uh, have an iris like the eye, which can open and close so that you can get a very narrow pinpoint of light coming through and a larger one if it's opened up. And that is usually set electronically on digital cameras it's not true on cell phone cameras they generally don't have a way to adjust the aperture Um, and that can be an advantage which uh, we'll talk about maybe a little bit later now related to the term aperture is the term f-stop yes now that stands for focal length stop right and stop here is uh as i understand it's a unit of measurement the stop being the measurement of the focal length. Now, how does this relate? Uh, maybe we don't need to get into that exactly, but tell us about the f-stop too. Yeah, I think it's important to understand a little about this. Um, what aperture does is you open the opening and let in more light. You're getting more light onto the sensor. So it's sort of like ISO. However, it also changes how deep the focus area is if you have your uh, lens wide open and take a shot of something close to you the background is likely to be blurred now that can be very very useful if that's what you want but if you're standing in front of uh, a mountain showing everybody where you climbed and the mountains up in the distance behind you, you probably want the figure in front to be nice and sharp and the mountain to be sharp too. And a smaller aperture will help you to get everything in focus. That's one reason that uh, cell phones are really good for the most part about keeping a shot in focus throughout. You don't get a lot of um, background blurriness unless you get very, very close to the subject. And that's because it's got a tiny aperture. It's just that teeny little lens that uh, you're looking through. This is a little counterintuitive for people. And the problem is that there's a balance here. Okay, so you're getting the aperture really small because you want to get everything nice and sharp. But you also want enough light to light up the subject. So you have other adjustments to make. But we'll get into those in a minute. People who are longtime photographers, not only in the digital realm, love to talk about f-stop or just stops and say, well, this needed to be adjusted about two stops down or two stops up. And what stop did you use in this? And so on. As with a lot of other technical terminology that used to be considered essential, it's becoming less important to know the fine points of f-stops. It gets automated, but you need to know the general direction in which they run. And this is where it starts to get confusing because the smaller the number of the f-stop, the larger the aperture. So a bigger open, wide open lens is designated with a small number and a tight, small opening in the lens is a big number. And that makes it pretty confusing for people until you figure out the difference. Now, on my camera, the smallest aperture I can get is f22. And that's where I set it if I want to get a landscape shot. I do a lot of landscape shooting often in the forest, and I want the trees in the distance and the plants nearby both to be in focus. So I have to use a pretty small f-stop. 
an aperture. Um, however, if I'm doing a portrait of somebody and I just want to focus on them and not so much, then I'll use a higher one. But then you have to compensate for the loss of light in other ways. If you're uh, shooting with, say, the iPhone, which is the one I'm familiar with, and other cell phones, there are other, some other good cell phones out there, too. Um, one of the best ways to do this is just let the camera do it, hold the camera pointing at what you want, and it'll probably take a sharp picture of what you were aiming at, provided that you actually get the camera to focus on your subject, which can be a problem if it's not right in the center. And one thing that a surprising number of people don't know how to do is just tap on the screen on the part of it you want the focus to be on, and it will adjust both the exposure and the amount of light that's put on it. And that's really important. I don't know how many times on Facebook I see these awful pictures that people have taken with very, very dark people in the foreground with a blown out bright background because they didn't tap on the people in the foreground. It's just so easy to do. Tapping triggers the shutter, basically, and where you tap it is critical for the camera making all the decisions about what to focus on. Tapping the screen doesn't trigger the shutter. You have to tap the area of the screen where the picture is, and then down at the bottom of the app, there is a button for the shutter, and that's what you tap to take the picture with. Oh, I see. All right. On my Android phone, actually, the way it works is you can move your finger around and adjust the focus and the exposure. There's a little um, uh, slider along the edge of that, too, where you can adjust the exposure at the same time. And then once you have that set up, that's right. Then you tap it again to shoot the picture. And where you tap when you shoot the picture is not important on the Android phone. Uh huh. Well, there are also a lot of apps for cell phones, which can be quite sophisticated and give you a lot of the same kind of control that you have with a big SLR. You have to buy them, but Pro Camera, for instance, which is available for, I think, all formats of cell phones, costs me $7. So <laughs> well worth the investment. Mm-hmm. The other tip is if you have a digital camera with a display, a LCD display, as most do, uh, then look at that and just adjust the aperture until it looks good. And that just means usually rotating a dial or doing something else with a menu. Um, if you just figure out which one controls the aperture, just rotate it till it looks good. Now, if it starts to get in an area you don't like, then you may have to adjust something else. That LCD, that's the one we all know about, just the big image on the back of your phone. Yeah, bigger on some than others. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even on a small point and shoot, you can see sort of what it's going to be like. And if you're really a, a beginner, you may not realize that when you look through the eyepiece on an SLR, you're not going to see exactly what the picture is going to look like. It may show you the focus, but it probably won't show you the exposure. And for that, you have to look at the screen. And that is a great boon. I really like cameras, and I had one, unfortunately, lost on my way between London and France on a bullet train. Um is an articulated screen, which uh, lets you swing it out and 
fold it in different directions so you can look down at it. For instance, if you've got the cat down low on the ground to, to uh, photograph a bug or a flower or something, you don't have to lie on your stomach to see it or on a tripod. It's really, really nice to have one of those. Unfortunately, the Canon I have now does not have an articulated screen, and I really, really miss it. But um, eyeballing it works very well, you know, but works better the more expensive the camera because there's more tolerance built in to the settings of these cameras uh, the more money you spend. When you talk about eyeballing it on an SLR, that's looking through the lens itself? No, looking at the display. Looking at the display, okay. Right. Now, but an SLR, digital, will allow you to do that traditional thing where what you see is what you get. You're actually looking through the lens right. when you look through the, as opposed to the old point-and-shoot old cameras where you would have an approximate view of what the lens is because literally it's putting your eye off up into the corner of the camera, whereas the lens is in the center of the camera. A single lens reflex actually lets you view through that lens. Right. And um, what I usually do when I'm shooting is uh, use the viewfinder, the little eyepiece up at the top, to frame the shot. And then just to check the lighting and stuff, then I'll quickly switch over to the screen to make sure that my exposure is not going to be too dark, too bright, or have any other problems with it. And then, you know, once I've got that particular area or subject that I'm photographing set, then I can feel confident to just continue to use um, the viewfinder for shooting, which is a lot more comfortable because you can hold it up to your face and press the camera against it to hold it steady and just click away. Whereas holding a camera mine weighs four pounds so holding it out at a distance from you so you can see the screen is a very unstable uh, situation for shooting with it's really important to check the results um you know all these digital cameras let you quickly review your photographs you don't have to look at all of them but look at uh, the initial shot you make of a particular subject to see how it recorded and you may find that although it looked pretty sharp when you first shot it when you were aiming it it didn't come out that sharp and if you really want to be careful then you can use the magnify there's usually a magnifying glass button that you can push and it'll blow up a portion of it just the other day i was uh, shooting pictures of a deer that i ran across beside the trail in the forest and i thought i had the deer pretty well right in the center of the focus sensor um, so I thought, well, it's going to focus right on the deer. I don't have to manually focus. And focusing on an animal that's moving manually is a skill far beyond my ability. I have to trust to the camera. But what it focused on were a few twigs that were up near its face. So the deer was just slightly out of focus in the background, although it was only like six inches behind those twigs. So checking that kind of thing becomes important. Right, so you're talking about reviewing your image after you've shot it. Right, exactly. You can go back and get it up on that screen, hit the magnifying button, and get in there and look and see what it looks like as you magnify it. It will start showing where the flaws are in the focus at that point. Right, and uh, with animals, usually they don't hang around long enough for you to check anything, so you just have to shoot a lot and figure you're only going to get them some of the time. I have one colleague in our photo club who specializes in shooting birds, and she does amazing things. So she spends hours and hours on a beach near here shooting eagles. And, uh, you know, you shoot a few thousand pictures, and you're going to get, if you're really good, 
a few really good ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, at the beginning here, we had a list of some vocabulary worth knowing. We talked about aperture. We talked about ISO. The other was a shutter speed. How does that factor in? Yeah, shutter speed is how long the shutter is held open. So you can let more light into the camera by opening the lens iris wider, the aperture, or you can just leave it open longer. Oh, leaving it open longer is a really good idea if your subjects are fairly stationary. Um, so if you've got a very patient model, <laughs> not a two-year-old, um, or a landscape or a picture of the food that you just made, one of my least favorite subjects, by the way, <laughs> something that's stationary, then uh, you can use a longer shutter speed. The problem is that most of us are not very good at holding cameras really steady. And if your own body is moving around, your subject's not moving, but you are, the camera's moving slightly, that's going to blur your photo. So there are various ways to overcome that. Traditional things have to do with using the neck strap and stretching the camera out taut, um, bracing uh, your elbow against your chest so that it doesn't wobble, uh, remembering not to breathe. <laughs> you know, there's a whole bunch of tricks. Uh, the traditional way to overcome this, though, is to use a tripod, and we'll talk about tripods later. Mm -hmm. But the other way to do it is just, again, pocket full of money. <laughs> the more expensive the camera, uh, the better the shutter speed you're going to be able to get and still get satisfactory pictures. So in order to freeze uh, something that's moving, and my most challenging thing that I photograph a lot is plants, flowers particularly, and it, it can seem like the air is pretty still, but just the slightest hint of a breeze can make them move almost imperceptibly, but the camera perceives that. And if the shutter speed is uh, too long, then you're going to get the blur. So the better the camera the more it can capture enough light to register the image, even with a very short exposure. So a lot of books will say, well, for this subject, you need this particular shutter speed. For this one, use this other shutter speed. That's fine for professionals who are shooting things over and over, and they have a, a subject like shooting baseball games or butterflies or whatever, and they know what works. Um, but for the average person who shoots a wide variety of subjects, it makes a lot of, of sense to allow the camera to decide the shutter speed or, on the other hand, to use a tripod. And there is another realm of photography for which a long, very long exposure would be desired. For example, shooting the stars at night or something. Right. And there you've got a trade-off. If you want a sharp image of, say, the moon or the stars, uh, you need to shoot long enough to get enough light to register. However, the night sky seems to rotate as the earth revolves underneath it. And so you're going to get star trails, which some people like and want, um, not so desirable in shooting the moon. So again, takes a really good camera and getting your other settings right to do that. I am not a successful nighttime photographer. I've tried a little bit, but I don't have the patience to do it. And besides, eh, other people can shoot this guy. It's not a unique <laughs> subject that needs to be captured by me. But the problem with shutter speed, we already talked about how contradictory f-stop seems to be, is that shutter speed is expressed in terms of 
seconds or fractions of seconds. And most of the time, you're going to be shooting in fractions of a second, sometimes a very small fraction. It's pretty common to have 125th of a second. That's not a particularly short exposure. That's kind of a, almost a standard one. But on cameras, the manufacturers have decided they don't want to display fractions. And I think maybe this goes back a long way. So the numbers can get very confusing. If you see a four in your exposures menu, that means it's one quarter of a second. It's the denominator in each case that's being expressed of a fraction. So there would be a one over the top imagined and then the four. So if you see four, that seems like a pretty low number. Um, but in fact, it's a huge number. That's a quarter of a second. That's very long. Your picture is almost certainly going to be blurred unless you're using a tripod. Uh, 125 means one 125th of a second, which is a very short exposure. So the bigger the number, the shorter the exposure. So we've got a similar problem to what you have with uh, understanding aperture. Now, you'd think that would solve the problem, but sometimes you want to do an exposure that's longer than a second, or you may just notice that on your camera you have that option. So here's how to deal with this problem. On Canon cameras, when you get beyond a quarter of a second, the display switches to zero inch mark three, in which the inch marks stand for a decimal point, and it means 0 0.3 seconds. And one inch mark five means 1.5 seconds and four inch mark means four seconds which is a very long exposure well that's kind of confusing but i guess it makes sense if you just substitute a decimal point for that inch mark i guess you can follow that but it's very confusing to beginners to look at their display and find that they have both four and four inch mark <laughs> and a four is a quarter of a second and four inch mark is four seconds. Four full seconds. Yeah, you, you might mess up a few of your pictures before you get that right. It's really unfortunate they adopted this because Nikon adopted actual decimal points, which makes a lot more sense so that uh, you don't have that same confusion. Okay. So if you have a large aperture because you want great depth of field, then you may need to reduce the shutter speed quite a bit even for a stationary subject, so you don't get overexposure. Overexposure means too much light coming into the sensor and making the image look washed out, sometimes just blank white, or just everything very pale and lacking in all details. And that's where looking at your LCD screen becomes really important. Uh, so you've got your aperture all set for the focus you want, then you rotate the shutter speed button or knob uh, to reduce the shutter speed if you need to, to get a nice looking image. And that's something you won't see through the viewfinder. You have to look at the display on the back of the camera. Mm -hmm. So then deciding how you're going to focus, a lot of the time, the cameras can get very complicated with this. Like when my camera has a multitude of different settings for the automatic focus. So you can say, well, focus on 
the very center point in the camera or focus over a larger area or a much larger area or average the focus. There's all kinds of things. Um, most of the time, you're going to be fine if you just leave it up to the camera and tell the camera and make sure you're pointing directly at it. But a standard thing in digital cameras that's good to know is if you want to focus on something that's not in the center of the image, move your camera so it is in the center. Depress the shutter button halfway, not so far that it takes a picture, but just halfway down. That usually will freeze the focus at that point and then swing the camera back to capture the frame that you wanted before with, uh, say, the person who's standing in front of the mountain over to the right-hand corner. Um and it'll still be focused there as long as you hold it down. Sometimes it's a little tricky to figure out what is halfway down, and you may make mistakes a lot, so it's good to practice a lot. But it's just a really good thing to get into uh, learning how to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes nothing but manual setting of focus will work. If you're shooting something that's extremely close up in detail, like a bee, for instance, Although bees move around so much. A spider, okay. If you're shooting a spider on a web, they don't move around a lot. Um, then manual focus is definitely going to be better. This is what's called macro photography. Again, a very contradictory sounding label because most people figure it's micro photography. Micro photography is shooting through a microscope. But um, when you're shooting something very, very small, very close up, that's called macro photography. And the challenge with macro photography is to get depth of field that's proper. That means you want the parts of your subject that you're really interested in to be sharp and clear and in focus and the background usually more blurred so it doesn't distract from your main subject like a spider and its web, say. Now, I took a picture of a spider who had built its web on our living room window a few days ago. And... Um, I got really close to him and snapped and I did not use a tripod because I was being lazy and didn't want to move the armchair out of the way. <laughs> and it came out so that you could see on some of the legs of the spider, the individual hairs. Mm. But there are other parts of the spider that weren't quite as sharp. And that's because by getting so close and using such a large aperture, I had unintentionally not got enough depth of field. The depth of field describes how much distance away from you, away from the camera, is sharp and in focus. So one trick is get back a little from your subject and zoom. If you do that, and I learned this especially in doing garden photography, which I do a lot of, um, get back from the flower bed. If you have a really good high quality lens that can zoom, then zoom in on it. Get your detail instead of putting it up. That gives you much better depth of field. And you have to experiment because you get too far away, then you'll lose what uh, traditionally has been called bokeh, B-O-K-E-H, the blurring of the background. It's an art. It's something to fiddle around with. But you don't have to know a lot of math or anything to do this. You just have to look at the results and remember, oh, okay, this is not as sharp as I thought it would be. Maybe if I back off a little bit and zoom and I'll get it um, and and adjust my aperture uh, so that the background's still somewhat blurred, but more of the subject in the foreground is in focus. Knowing the directions in which things to move is more important than knowing the numbers. 
Okay, well, that's a lot to absorb, and we're just getting started, right, on all the intricacies of photography and the language of photography. Well, we've just scratched the surface of the surface. We're not going to dive in deep here. Yeah, we're never going to dive in deep, but uh, even just getting through that surface is going to be a bit of a trek. So let's wrap this up for now, and I want to pick up and talk about this next time some more. Okay, look forward to it. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.